Cost is not laying reason nice and high. Can you believe that the Niners are playing today? Can you believe that? The Rams too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. I, th- I thought you were a Raiders fan. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, it's, right? I mean, hey, whatever it takes, man. Right? I mean, it's, it's all about that. So we're just praying for everyone here today, right? So let's go ahead. We're going to um, go ahead and pray, and we're going to dive into God's Word, and we're just asking God for blessing today, just for a good day, right? Amen. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that <clears throat> we can come in, into a place like this, and Father, just engage in worship. And thank you for the precious time, the pure time of worship and calling out to you and raising our hands and and loving you. And we're so blown away how much you love us. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, today that we would understand as Christians that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation through you. And so, Father, I pray that we would hold on to this message today. Speak to our hearts as we open up your word and Father, I decrease that you would increase, empty myself of myself, so fill me with yourself that everything that I say and do, every thought that enters my mind would be of you and not of me. I pray this in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21 is today's text. Again, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. We're now in part eight of our series, From the Heart. See, from the heart. Say it a little louder. From the heart. Yeah, okay. And as always, before we even dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, which was verses 1 through 10 of this chapter, chapter 5. And I gave you five points. You might remember those points. The first point of last week's text was the garment. Say the garment. And that's found in verse 1. And Paul's confidently saying We know when this body of ours, this tent of ours, this earthly vessel is destroyed, that there's a new body awaiting us. And it's from God. It's eternal. Say eternal. In other words, it's permanent, not temporary. It's it's heavenly, not earthly. It's not made with human hands, but made by God himself. He especially makes it, listen now, uh, to suit our bodies for eternity. Amen? And then the second point was the groaning. Say the groaning. And that's in verses 2 through 4. And Paul's declaring that our bodies are groaning for the new ones, longing and, and groaning uh, for our new bodies, the new home, groaning for glory. And he goes on to say that, we, that the, the new heavenly life to come will overtake our present existence. That life, say life, life, not death, but life swallows the believers up. I love that life swallows the believers up. Up. All that is mortal, all that is corruptible and weak and subject to decay is going to be swallowed up by eternal life. The garment, the groaning, then the third point was the guarantee. Say that. The guarantee, in verse, that's in verse 5, and we know that the Holy Spirit living inside of us is a deposit guaranteeing, say guaranteeing, what is to come. It's the guarantee on our future resurrection our eternal security, and also our eternal home. But the fourth point was the glory. Say the glory. And that's in verses 6 through 8. And Paul knew that once the believer drew 
their last breath on earth, they would exhale in glory. And they were confident, say confident, assured of being ushered into the presence of Jesus at death. The fifth point was the goal, say the goal. And that's in verses 9 through 10. And there Paul's goal, his aim, his ambition was to what? To please God. Say, please God. And he wants to please God because he knows one day he must stand before the judgment seat or the bema seat of Christ. And this is for believers, right? This is for believers, not non-believers. And this judgment includes every believer and it cannot be avoided, right? It's personal. It's a personal judgment. And that's how complete this judgment is. And we all have a court date with God himself. And that's one appointment that you and I will not miss. Remember, at the judgment seat, we're not going to face condemnation Rather, evaluation. Say evaluation. To receive various degrees of rewards for what you and I have done in this life. This now brings us to today's text. And the title of my message today is Reconciliation. Everyone say that. Two points from today's text. If you already say yes. Point number one is this. The motivation. The motivation for ministry. Say that. The motivation for ministry. And we're going to look at verse 11 here, verse 11. And Paul writes, since then, your Bibles might render as therefore. And since he says, since then or therefore, Paul, what he's doing, he's pointing us back, pointing us back to the statement he made in the previous verse. And the previous verse was, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Again, this is for believers, not non-believers. That each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So knowing that there's a judgment day coming, here's Paul's motivation. Okay, here's the motivation. We know what it is to fear the Lord. Did you get that? Since then, therefore, right, we know what it is to fear the Lord. This is an attitude of awe, of reverence, of respect towards God. And Paul, friends, Paul lived in the fear of God because he's aware that once his life is over, once it's done here on earth, he will have his works judged by Christ. Did you get that? So what does Paul say that we do? Well, let's read on. We tried to persuade men. Did you get that? Since then, we know what is to fear the Lord. We try what? To persuade men. I want to stop there. This motivated him, Paul, to keep sharing the gospel. It motivated him to share the gospel in order to receive Christ's commendation, commendation at judgment time. Now question, are you persuading others related to the gospel? Think about it. Are you persuading others, those around you on a daily basis, okay, persuading others related to the gospel? In fact, the word persuading means reasoning. Reasoning with people when they ask us questions about the gospel. I want you to write this down, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. 1 Peter 3, 15. And Peter writes this, Always, say always, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason. Say reason. Reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Did you get that? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason the reason for the hope that you have. That being said, are you, are you prepared to give a reason, you've got to get this now, a reason to explain why it's reasonable to believe in Jesus. Reasonable to accept what he did on the cross as a payment for the sins of mankind. Now if you're safe, say amen. 
We have a reasonable faith. Did you know that? That our faith in Christ, the message of the gospel, is a reasonable faith, a reasonable gospel. It's reasonable to consider Jesus as Savior. Can someone say amen? Let's read on. What, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. So what Paul is doing here, Paul is hoping that the people will see his heart through all of this. That in their conscience, in their conscience, they are fully convinced about the genuineness of the work he and those with him have done among them. Verse 12. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you. Again, now remember, Paul, Paul is having to defend himself. And, and some of the Corinthian believers had criticized Paul, criticized him, and also questioned his credentials. So we are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. Giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. I want to stop there because here, kind of thought about it. What is Paul saying here? Well, Paul is talking like a dad here. He's talking like a dad. Remember, Paul, he was a spiritual father of the believers in Corinth, right? He planted the church, right? He, he, he taught them the word of God. So Paul shepherded them. So Paul's like, I'm proud of you. I'm very proud of you. And I just hope that you're proud of me. You get that? And that's what Paul is saying here. He's simply saying, I'm proud of you. And I hope that you're proud of me. Let's read on. So that you, speaking of the Corinthian believers, you can answer those. Those are the Judaizers. Those legalists. Got it? Those work-based religious people. So that you, Corinthian believers, can answer those Judaizers, Judaizers who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the what? The heart. So we know that the Judaizers were focused on the outwardness, right? The, the circumcision. They're not focusing on what's in the heart. They're just focusing on what's on the, the outside. The outside. And Paul's like, those guys, the Judaizers, those guys are... They focus and boast in appearance. But not us. Not us. We're not worried about appearance or, or how we perceive, how we are perceived by others. We're focused on what's on the inside. We're focused on what's in the heart. Say in the heart. Now remember, if, if you know this, friends, Paul was nothing to look at. Historians say that he was short, bald, hook-nosed, and bow-legged. Okay, he was nothing to look at, but his heart, Paul's heart, was beautiful. Right? His heart was beautiful. So here's a lesson. If you're ready, say yes. God wants you concerned with the inside. He wants you and I concerned with the inside. Now, we spend time fixing ourselves up to make ourselves look, what, presentable, right? Pretty, handsome. You know, we do our hair. The ladies do their makeup, uh, picking the right clothes, but yet, listen now, but yet, spending no time or little time whatsoever fixing up our hearts. Right? The truth is, a lot of people take pride in their appearance and could, could care less about what's on the inside. And you notice that our entire culture, right, our, our entire society reinforces our flesh's desires to work on the outside, not the inside. They are more concerned about the outer appearance rather than the inside. But God is 
constantly telling us through his word to work on the inside, not the outside. Now, it doesn't mean that we neglect our outside, but the inside is more important, right? The spiritual is more important than the physical. In fact, write this down in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 to 28. Matthew 23, verses 27 to 28. Jesus there, what he did, he rebuked the Pharisees who thought they were good as long as they appeared religious on the outside. And they did. They appeared very religious on the outside, okay, but were very wicked on the inside, right? Very wicked on the inside. Their hearts were wicked. Now, if you're saved, say amen. If you're going to focus in on something to improve in your life, you don't need a, a Botox, you don't need a facelift or tummy tuck or a new outfit. You just need a heart for God. Can I get an amen? That's all you need is a heart for God. All the other stuff's going to waste away. And hopefully we will have a heart for God. Can I get an amen? Look at verse 13 with me. Now, if we are put, if we are put out of our mind, your Bibles might render it as, Beside ourselves. In fact, that phrase, beside ourselves, is a euphemism for crazy. So Paul's saying if we are out of our mind or crazy, it is for the sake of who? God. And I want to stop it because Paul says, hey, if we look crazy, if we look crazy, it's just because we're serving God against all human understanding. They can't understand why we're crazy for God. Are you guys with me? In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10, write that down, 1 Corinthians 4, 10, Paul says, we are fools for Christ's sake. I love that. We are fools for Christ's sake. In fact, in Acts chapter 26, you might remember this from our series from the book of Acts, but in Acts chapter 26, there Paul, he's, he's waiting to be taken to Rome. And he's given his testimony before Festus. And Paul's talking about his experience on the road to Damascus. And then he begins to talk about what? About Jesus and how Jesus died and Jesus was resurrected. And you know what Festus says to Paul? Festus says to Paul, okay, he says this. He says, you are out of your mind. And then he says this, your great learning, Paul, your great learning is driving you insane. Listen, if, if you're living for God and someone says you're crazy or insane, then guess what? You're in good company. Say good company. Because they said the same thing about Jesus. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, write that down, Mark 3, 21, they said that Jesus has lost his senses. And in John 10, 20, John 10, 20, they said he has a demon and is insane. So people say you're crazy, okay, because you live for Jesus, but you're crazy. You're in good company. They said the same thing about Paul, the same thing about Jesus. So here's the lesson. Are you ready for the lesson? Crazy for Jesus. There it is. Say that. Crazy for Jesus, right? Are you crazy for Jesus? And I would assume that when they say, Paul, you're insane, he says, yes, I'm insane for Jesus. We got to be crazy for Jesus. Right? I mean, we're crazy for sports. We're crazy for our team. We're yelling and screaming and hollering and cheering, right? And people know who our team is, right? We're crazy for shopping, ladies, right? We're crazy for Netflix and we, you know, binge watch stuff. We're crazy for our iPhones. Why can't we be crazy for Jesus? Now, I'm not saying those things are wrong, 
But we got to be more crazy for Jesus than those other things. Right? That others would say, man, that guy, that gal, they're crazy. They're crazy. I'm crazy for Jesus. What a compliment that is, that we're crazy for Jesus. Let's read on. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So what does Paul say here? Well, I couldn't really, what is he saying? Because Paul says, he writes a lot of things. We just don't understand what Paul's saying, right? But he says, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. So I, I believe what his point is, is that he's completely in control when he's, that, that, that he's completely in control of his mind. And when, he, and when he is completely in control of his mind, he's using it to serve the Corinthian believers. That's, that's all I can come, with, come up with, folks, okay? All right. Now, now, why is Paul out of his mind? Why is Paul crazy for Jesus? What is his motivation? Well, let's look at verse 14. Let's, let's continue to read. For Christ's love compels us. Your Bibles might say controls us. You guys got that? This is why Paul was out of his mind for Jesus. Why? For Christ's love compels us, controls us. I want to stop there. The word compel means to drive something onward. To drive something onward. Follow me. Christ's love, his love, drives us onward. Why? Let's read on. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. Let's continue to read. Verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live... When he says those who live, he's speaking of those who live for Jesus. Got it? That those who live, if you're safe, say amen. That's us. Should no longer live for themselves. Did you get that? But for him who died for them and was raised again. So what's Paul's motivation? His motivation for ministry, his motivation for life is this, that Jesus died for me, Paul's saying. He died for me. Jesus gave his all, gave it all for me. That's Paul's motivation. Listen, Jesus Christ was the representative of all when he died. And the death that he died on the cross was in itself the death of all. In other words, in other words he was paying the price for the sins of all of humanity. You see, the controlling factor of Paul's life, the controlling factor of Paul's ministry was the love of Christ as seen in his death. So here's the lesson. You ready for the lesson? Live for Jesus. Live for Jesus. Because our natural bent, our natural state is to live for who? Ourselves. Ourselves. No one needs to teach you and I to live for ourselves. The moment we're born, it's all about us. Right? By nature, we are selfish. By nature, we are self-centered people. Life is for me. That's what we say. Life is for me to please me, to satisfy, and to make me happy. Get this. One of the reasons that Jesus died for us is so that we would stop living for ourselves and start living for him. He gave it all for me. For you, right? He gave it all for me, so should I do any less than give all to him? Philippians 1.21, write that down. Philippians 1.21, Paul says this. He says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Good way to live, good way to die. Now some of you say, well, I'll die for Jesus. Let me ask you, will you live for him? I mean, is that, is that your, 
your life verse, for me to live is Christ. Everything else is secondary. Living for him is primary. Amen? Can we honestly say that? For me to live is Christ. I'm giving my all to him because he gave his all to me. Listen, when you got saved, remember that time when you got saved? That moment, that precious moment when you got saved? From that day until the day you go to glory, the Holy Spirit has a fundamental ministry in your life, and that is to get you to stop living for yourself and start living for Jesus. Galatians 2.20, write that down. Galatians 2.20 says, It is no longer I, Paul writes, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Powerful. You're saved, say amen. When Jesus died, we died in him. And we died with him. Therefore, the old life, the old life, should have no hold on us today. Listen. Futility, futility comes when we live for ourselves. Fulfillment, say fulfillment, comes when we live for Jesus and to please him. Look at verse 16a with me. Because here at verse 16, Paul is motivated by a radically new perspective. So verse 16a, he says, So from now on, we regard no one from a, what, worldly point of view. And so what Paul's doing here, Paul insists that we look at every single person from a different perspective. That instead of looking at the outer appearance, the important question that must be answered about each person is spiritual. God, that's a spiritual. Follow me. Well, every person is valuable. We know every person is valuable, right? Their value is not found in physical things or worldly wealth, friends. Their greatest need is not for physical things, but for reconciliation with God through Christ. You see, the understanding that everyone can be forgiven from sin and transformed through faith in Christ has changed how Paul regards every person on earth. And this is Paul's desire to see people saved. Paul sees everyone as one who needs Jesus. Got it? Changes his perspective. If you're saved, say amen. Our experience of Christ, got to get this. Our experience of Christ's love moves or at least should move us to a new perspective. And that is to look at others through the eyes of God and see their greatest need, that's reconciliation, salvation in Christ. So that when you and I are looking at others, see them through the eyes of God. They need Jesus. Can I get an amen? Verse 16b, though we once regarded Christ in this way, from what, what's, what way? From a worldly point of view. So he says, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So before Paul's conversion, he saw Christ as a blasphemer, right? And a troublemaker who needed to be stopped. But now that Paul's been converted, okay, being converted, he understands that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Lord, Master, and King. And he is the one, he is one, excuse me, one with the Eternal Father. So Paul sees Jesus differently now than he did before. 
Verse 17. You still with me? Say amen. Therefore, that word therefore means, in other words, looking at understanding who Jesus Christ really is, therefore, understanding who Jesus Christ really is, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation, and, and, and the old is gone, and the new has come. Listen, I want you to get this. At the root of understanding this verse, this verse, at the root of understanding this verse, verse 17, we see in, 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 in no uncertain terms that Jesus changes people. Jesus, Jesus changes lives. Can I get in agreement with that? Lesson, here's the lesson. We're changed to change. Say that. We're changed to change. And I want to say this, and I said this many times. Getting saved is more than a transaction. It's transformation. Got it? It's more than just coming up and saying, I want Jesus in my life. That's good. That's so what? That's, a, that's transaction. But there must be transformation after that. There must be a change in your life. Right? And as believers, your life can change. In fact, it should be changing. If you call yourself a Christian, your life should be changing every day. Right? And this is the effect of the gospel. If you're safe, say amen. We, we don't just tell people about the gospel. They should see the effect of the gospel in our lives. Right? So this is Paul's motivation for ministry. He's motivated by seeing people in a different perspective and winning them to Christ and knowing that when they come to Christ, they can be changed. Are you guys with me? Say the motivation for ministry. Number two is the message of reconciliation. Say that. I love this. Look at verse 18, the message of reconciliation. Verse 18, all this, say all this, is from God. Now I want to stop there because understand when he says all this is from God, that's the act, listen, the act of reconciliation, say the act. The act of reconciliation was accomplished by who? God. Got it? The whole plan of salvation. That whole plan of salvation and history of redemption is God-centered. Right? All this is from God. You and I, we had nothing to do with it. We had nothing to do with the accomplishment of reconciliation. It was all, listen now, all done by God. So let's read on. All this is from God. That's the act of reconciliation, right? It was accomplished by God. All this is from God. Let's read on. Who reconciled us to himself through who? Come on. Jesus Christ. That's the method. We saw the act, God. Now the method of reconciliation was what? In Jesus taking our sins upon himself. So you have the act of reconciliation, and now you have the method of reconciliation, and that was Jesus taking our sins upon himself. Are you still with me? Say amen. And by the way, in the Greek, reconcile, the word reconcile is katalasso. Say that. Katalasso. It means to change thoroughly, to restore a relationship. This is what it means. To bring friendship, say friendship, where there was once hostility. To bring friendship where there was once hostility. And that's the description of what happened to you and I. Right? Right? 
Now that reconciliation has been made possible, God, and I love this, what God has done, he has entrusted the message of reconciliation to us. How mind-blowing is that? In other words, you and I, listen now, we are stewards, not keepers, but stewards of this message. We don't keep it to ourselves, but we steward it out. We share it, amen? We're stewards. Let's read on. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The act, the method. Notice the ministry of reconciliation. The, listen, the ministry of reconciliation is our job. It's us. The act, God. The method, Jesus Christ. The ministry, us. Are you guys getting this? Okay, listen, it's our job, my job, your job, to take, listen, take this message and reach out to people who are separated from God and let them know that God loves them and that God offers forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ. That's our job. That's our job. Verse 19. And this verse simply, verse 19 simply restates the truth of the previous verse. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting or imputing men's sins against them. And he has committed to us, here we go, the what? The message of what? Say it. Reconciliation. Again, God has entrusted us, you and I believers, with the privilege of sharing. And it is a privilege of sharing the great message of the gospel. Amen? Verse 20. We are therefore Christ, love this, ambassadors, say ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal, love this, through us. And I want to stop there. And I'll read it again to you, okay? We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. An ambassador is one who serves in a foreign land, got that, in a foreign land, as a representative of a king. In our case, the world, this world, is the foreign land. And who's our king? Jesus. Jesus is our king. Stay with me here. An ambassador, and you got to get this, an ambassador doesn't speak to please his audience, but the king who sent him. If you got it, say got it. He doesn't speak on his own authority, his own opinions or demands. He simply says what he has been given or been commissioned to say by the king. I'm not going to say what I say or what I think or my opinion. I'm going to say what the king says. Amen? Get this. The ambassador, he's not just a messenger, but also a representative. Got it? Got it? So we're not just messengers, but representatives of the kingdom of God. Okay, here we go. Lesson, are you ready for the lesson? Here we go. We represent Jesus. If you are saved, born again, heaven bound, you and I represent Jesus. So if you're saved, say amen. Question, are we accurately representing our King Jesus? Huh? Some of you this morning walked in with some jerseys, and God bless you. Praise God for that. Amen? You're representing your team. People know who you represent. There's nothing wrong with that. But we must represent Jesus Christ beyond that, right? And as believers, wherever we go, Whoever we're with, we need to represent the king. Share the message, 
right? And be the messenger and represent Jesus Christ. Again, when we represent Jesus Christ, the king, it's not, listen, we don't say what we want to say or what we think, what the word says. No, we say what Jesus says, right? We represent the king. People say, well, I think this is what the Bible says. No, what, what, is, what does Jesus say? What does the Bible say? Because what I think or my opinion is irrelevant. Amen? Let's read on. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be what? Reconciled to God. Now, I love this. You've got to get this. We implore you. Say implore. On Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. In other words, there should be a sense of urgency in our message. You get that? A sense of urgency in our message. Here's the lesson. You ready for the lesson? Very simple. Here we go. Share the gospel. That's it. Share the gospel. And I want to say this because some of you trip out. When someone, listen now, rejects the gospel, they're not rejecting you. So don't freak out when they reject the gospel. Okay, They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ. Don't give up so easily. And some, some, some believers, believe it or not, because someone rejects the gospel, they give up. Oh, I don't want to do it no more. Hey, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ. Get this. We don't command them to be saved. We don't. And we don't condemn them. What we do is we plead with them to turn and respond to Jesus. Right? Verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now I want you to underline that, highlight that, circle that verse. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the what? Of God. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, called this verse, verse 21, the heart of the gospel. It's the gospel in one verse. Verse 21 is the gospel in one verse. And if you miss this, listen friends, if you miss this, you miss the truth of God. This is how God made reconciliation possible. So what I want to do real quick here, I want to break this verse down for you. You guys ready? We're going to exposit this verse. Here we go. Notice three things. And I want you to write this down. Notice three things. The first thing is notice his character. Write that down. Say that. Verse 21. We're going back to verse 21. We're going to break it down. Verse 21a, God made him who had no sin. Who's him? Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ, God's one and only son, had no sin. Jesus knew no sin. Stressing, what that does is stressing the sinless nature of his inner being. Follow me. There was no sin outwardly in Jesus. Why? Because there was no sin inwardly. Someone say amen. Write this down. 1 John 3, 5. 1 John 3, 5. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. 1 Peter 2, 22. 1 Peter 2, 22. Peter writes this. He committed no sin. Did you get that? No sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus Christ, listen friends, as he walked on this earth, fully God, right? Fully man, was perfectly righteous. He was without sin, without evil, without fault. In John 8, 46. Come on now. John 8, 46. At his trial... Jesus asked this. He said, which one of you convicts me of sin? 
There was no answer from either the Romans or the Jews. No one could convict him of sin. Now listen, he never did anything wrong, and he never deviated from the path of the Father's will. And I love that about Jesus, right? Now, now, why is this so important? Why is this so important? Because if he had sinned, if Jesus had sinned, if he did, then he could not be our Savior. A sinner could not pay for the sins of another sinner. Can't do it. The sacrifice, a sacrifice, must be made by one without spot or blemish. It reminds me of Exodus 12, 5. Write that down, Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. The Passover there, you have the Passover. And God told Moses that the lambs must be one-year-old males in good health, free from disease, and and free from disease and physical defect. So the lambs that were slaughtered in Egypt pictured the coming Lamb of God. Got it? Who by his bloody sacrifice or sacrificial death would take away the sins of the, of the world. John 1.29, write that down. John 1.29. John 1.29. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the, sin, the world. So Jesus is the sinless, pure, unblemished Lamb of God. And he lived in a sinful world, but the stain of sin never, never tarnished his character. And that's why Hebrews 4.15, write it down. Hebrews 4.15 says, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. Just as we are, yet he did not sin. It's his character. Say his character. Notice, write this down, his sacrifice. We're breaking down this verse now. Remember that. His character, his sacrifice. Look at verse 21b. He says, to be sin for us. God made him who had no sin. Here we go, his sacrifice, to be sin for us. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, became sin for us. Now I want you to get this and listen up. Paul's not suggesting that Jesus literally became a sinner. Are you guys with me? Jesus remained personally sinless while hanging on the cross. He never, say never, committed a sin. Therefore, he he never became a sinner. And perhaps the best way to understand this is to say that God treated his son, listen now, God treated his son as if he were a sinner. Treated him as if he were a sinner. And by the way, friends, even his becoming sin, being treated as a sinner, was a righteous act of love, not an act of sin. Amen? So real quick here, I want to do this real quick here. Two phrases, I want to give you two phrases that describe how Christ became sin for us. And I want you to write this down. Just write this down. He took our place. Just write that down. Say that. He took our place. He became sin for us. He took our place. When Christ died on the cross, he took my place, he took your place, right? And this is the doctrine of substitution. Say substitution. That Christ died in, listen now, Christ died in the place of guilty sinners. So think of it this way. His nails were meant for us. The crown of thorns were meant for us. Should have been on my head, should have been on, on your head. The spear should have pierced my side and your side. The insults were meant for us. It should have been me and you hanging on that cross, right? 
but it wasn't. It was Jesus dying in my place, in your place, as a substitute. Say substitute. So he took our place. Say that. The second phrase I want to give you here is, listen now, he took our penalty. Not just our place, but our penalty. He became sin. Right? And this follows from the first truth. Right? From the first truth. On the cross, Jesus became the sinless sin bearer. He paid the price we owed to God, the debt we could never pay. His death satisfied, say satisfied, God's righteous demands for the payment of sin. And this is what we call propitiation. Say that. Propitiation. It means the removal of God's punishment for the sin through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's propitiation. I want you to write this down. Isaiah 53, 6. Isaiah 53, 6 says this. It says that the Lord has laid on him, that is on Christ, the iniquity of us all. Got it? He took our penalty. His character, right? His sacrifice. Notice the third thing is his gift. Write that down. Say that. The last part of verse 21. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that beautiful? That's his gift. To those who receive his son, Jesus Christ. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what we all want, right? This is what we, will all, this is what we all want, right? To, to be what? Made right with God. To have our record cleared. Now in this final phrase, we have what is called the great exchange. And theologians have a term for this exchange and they call it the doctrine of imputation. Say that. Of imputation. In the Greek, the word imputing is lo. Logitsumai, logitsumai, it means to reckon or count or compute or calculate. It means to make an account of. Got it? Logitsumai. And this is a term from the banking world. And it means that when we trust Christ, listen now, when you and I trust Christ, our sin is credited to Christ's account. Got that? And his righteousness is a credit to our account. What amazing exchange, right? Say amen to that. Follow me. He takes our debt, got that? Our debt, and we get his credit. He paid what we owed and could never pay, right? And he gives us what he has and we could never earn. In other words, God the Father treated God the Son as if he were a sinner, though he was not. God treated Jesus as if Jesus were guilty of every sin ever committed so that he could treat you and I like Jesus. Oh, man. You guys getting this? So let me, let me put it this way. He was condemned that we might be justified. He died so that you and I might live. He suffered that we might be redeemed. He was made sin that we might be made righteous. He was called what we are in order to call us to be what he is. He bore our sins so that we could bear his righteousness. That's the principle of imputation. That's it. That's what it means. 
the great exchange. Listen, there is no salvation, say that, come on, apart from this. Because receiving his righteousness, receiving it by faith, is what salvation is all about. And it's not as if God has a plan B for people. Okay, he doesn't have a plan B for people okay, who don't like plan A. <laughs> you come to God by way of the cross. Or you don't come at all. Choice. There's no plan B. Plan A is you come by the way of the cross. You see, as believers, this is our simple message. We sing a song called The Simple Gospel. It is. It's a simple gospel, a simple message. It's the message as ambassadors, we represent the king. It's the message of reconciliation. Right? So since you and I have the message of reconciliation and are commissioned to share that message, okay, as believers, know it, understand it, memorize it, show it, and share it. Represent your king. Amen? Praise him. He is worthy. Come on. Let's all stand.